I'm Naomi Klein, and I am at Navarro Media right now, having just done a wonderful in-depth interview. And this is why I love Navarro Media. And I listen regularly and watch to find out what the hell is going on in the UK. It is so critical to have independent media that we can trust, that goes deep on the issues, and also lets people stay up on the day-to-day twists and turns. It's going to be especially important for your next election. So I'm incredibly grateful that Navarra Media exists, and it exists because people support it. So make sure to support Navarra Media. We need left institutions, and that means that we have to support them when they're doing such great work as Navarra Media is. Thanks. Welcome to Navarra FM. I'm Eleanor Penny. Does your boss wear a t-shirt when you're still turning up to work in a suit? Do you have a nose ring, a push bike or a neck tattoo? Do you paint your house magnolia white in a tasteful nod to minimalism or did your landlord do it in order to cover up the mould? Do you bake your own bread? Are you worried about your cluttered home, your skin texture, your overprocessed diet, the way a security guard looks at you, or what an interview panel might make of your shoes? A complex network of cultural signifiers governs so much of the way we move through the world, and it's deeply inflected by class, race, gender, and disability. To make it in the labour marketplace and in an increasingly image-orientated social world, we are expected to be masters of the fine and delicate language of good taste. So what does that look like in practice? What does good taste even mean? And what does it have to do with class? Natalie Ola's book Bad Taste delves into this matrix of manners and consumer choices, asking what role taste plays in a modern world riven with inequalities and exclusion. Natalie is a writer whose work has appeared in The Guardian, The White Review, Art Review and many other places besides. She's the author of the books Steal As Much As You Can and Look Again, Class, published by The Tate. She came on the show in early 2022 to talk about that last title, so if you'd like more from Natalie, you can flip back through the Navarra FM archives. We talked about Jamie Oliver, Donald Trump and Pamela Anderson, about oven pizza and shoeless offices and minimalist houses and the chances of escaping the claustrophobic demands of good taste. Natalie, hello, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to have you here, have you back on the show. Tell us how you came to this new project. There are some fantastic moments, especially uh, through the beginning of the book, where you talk a bit about uh, your induction, or I guess everyone's induction in some ways, into this uh, very thorny matrix, also known as taste. Yeah, so I mean, just from a kind of writing perspective. I'd written a book in 2019 called Steal As Much As You Can, uh, which was really about the kind of cannibalization of working class life by the media in the 1990s and how that had created the illusion of a kind of more democratic media, which kind of only revealed itself only through over time to be um, kind of still staunchly elitist and um, impenetrable to normal working people. And while writing that, I found myself 
coming back to this question of taste, which hadn't been an intention in writing that book. Um, but by the time I finished it, I realized that this was a subject that I was really interested in. And it was something that I wanted to go and devote more time to and do the relevant reading in order to properly understand. So that's the kind of practical reason for why I arrived at this subject. The sort of uh, kind of strategic in terms of like being someone who, you know, I always want to do something that's kind of chipping away at the kind of the artifice that we sort of, the kind of capitalist artifice that we live in. From that kind of perspective, what I was trying to do, it's kind of what I'm always trying to do, which is to kind of challenge uh, some of the falsehoods that are used to justify the kind of liberal mentality, the main one being this idea of meritocracy. And one of the like core tenets of meritocracy is that uh, if you, by the way, I don't believe in meritocracy as an idea, but if I were to kind of follow its logic, mm -hmm. there's this there's this idea that if you work hard, and that could be kind of in school and getting the right qualifications or in the kind of professional sphere, kind of get your head down, you'll be remunerated. And all of us sort of know intuitively that that's not true. Uh, the market economy doesn't reward hard work and diligence. It tends to reward things like bullishness, arrogance, mm -hmm. uh, overconfidence, risk-taking behavior, and sort of appearances, uh, kind of flair, style, charm. And part of that is kind of, yeah, so how you look, um, but I don't just mean sort of your physical body, that's one dimension to it. And I do talk about beauty and physicality, but also the kind of aesthetic choices that you make that kind of contribute to this visual identity. And so I wanted to do that. And I also had kind of observed that this tendency to judge people by appearances, uh, which undermines the whole idea of meritocracy, because we all know that we are to an extent judged by our appearances. And that this goes against the idea that if you just work hard and crack on, that's all you need to do. Um, that this tendency to judge people by appearances was becoming worse due to kind of technological advancements in recent decades um, and visual communication technology that was supplying us with so much visual stimuli um, that we couldn't really kind of pass or process any of it with uh, accuracy or depth. And so we were kind of being coaxed by this technology into making more rash and kind of superficial assumptions about the other um, as a result. So these were all the kind of like conditions that led to me wanting to write to this book. Um, and then the anecdotes that you refer to sort of in the opening segment of the book were taken from my own life. And my reason for doing that is that I wanted to make this subject uh, personal and relatable. Mm. And when I was sort of thinking about the most relevant instances where this kind of question of, of taste and kind of appearances and presentation style had kind of cropped up in my own life. I mean, there was hundreds, if not thousands, that mm. you could sit there and cite. But what I thought was most fascinating w was to think about the kind of earliest encounters with this sort of world of sort of good taste and respectability and how it had made me feel. So I went back and thought, you know, what is the first moment in which I realised that there was this sort of idea of uh, sort of tastefulness and propriety and respectability. And it was in this video shop um, where I grew up and the appearance of this poster of Pamela Anderson, which appeared in the window. And <laughs> the great. The great Pamela <laughs> Anderson. And um, 
me just being mesmerized by what was essentially quite like a garish spectacle. Mm. Um, someone who hadn't sort of repressed their kind of desires that they, they were kind of all there to see. They were in the open that was like very sexually explicit, you know, kind of sexually overt, the style of dress, but it was also quite camp and quite expressive and playful and fun. And that was just intoxicating to me. And, um, without me realizing at the time, it was probably because the world in which I grew up in at that time was teaching me that I needed to kind of repress so many things about myself in order to get by and succeed. Right. And there is this, obviously, something that gestures towards the idea of pleasure in taste, right? It's, you know, there's, we use the same word for something being tasty, right? That like, <laughs> indicates that there is something or should be something pleasurable located in the heart of it. But um, as you lay out, it's, it's often articulated through a series of like self-denials, series of kind of exclusions where the kind of taste becomes like this ever more kind of like cosseting thing, particularly if you're trying to navigate it from a kind of class outsider, quote unquote, perspective, you know, the, the codes which are, which are supposed to seem natural and effortless, like highly, highly mannered, highly artificial in the way that, you know, it's impossible to navigate. Yeah, absolutely. And I use the example of the scene from the Mary Heron adaptation of the Bret Easton Ellis novel, American Psycho, just because most people by this point, if they haven't seen the film or read the book, will be familiar with the scene around the um, the business cards. Tell where, us. Okay, so the uh, uh, Patrick Bateman, who's the protagonist, and his kind of fellow demonic bankers <laughs> in this nameless bank where they work, I think it's nameless, um, are comparing the like kerning of the typeface and the embossing and the quality of the paper on their... Um, business cards. This is the 1980s, so people still had business cards. Um, I'm trying to think of what the modern equivalent would be. <clears throat> but they become more and more agitated at the kind of like the minute differences between their respective business cards. And to a kind of like outside observer, you wouldn't know, you wouldn't notice any difference. But it's this kind of narcissism of small differences, which is the Freudian idea um, that you start to see creep in in, you know, in your own behaviours, kind of the more sort of inculcated you become within a sort of work environment, professional environment. And let's talk about that work and professional environment, because this idea of um, cultural capital, or at least the uh, the ability to emulate the kind of mores and preferences of the keepers of resources and powers, um, and, and those mores and, and uh, preferences are a kind of a way in which their power is is naturalized as deserving, right? Um, but also if you, I don't know, want to get a job, particularly in like certain forms of like uh, public facing or cultural industries, like you need to be able to know the difference between a good kind of kerning on a business card and a bad kind of kerning on a business card. Yeah. I mean, and that's quite an extreme version, but I think that there's a tendency for all of us to think that like actually is this stuff as prevalent as we think it is. But What's quite interesting is since writing this book or while, since researching this book and speaking to people, I tend to find that people who have immigration in their recent history, so either the first, second, third generation immigrants, tend to intuitively know what I'm talking about in a way that perhaps some people who whose families have lived here for a very long time are a little bit more kind of sceptical of what I'm talking about. Because I think that if the kind of cultural uh, atmosphere in which you were raised was kind of different to the dominant culture. You intuitively know that quite a lot of what you encounter isn't just like a norm and you will quite often feel out of place. And I think people entering recruitment processes and higher education 
and interview processes for university places will also kind of have maybe experiences of encountering cultural strains that they weren't familiar with and felt as though they needed to learn in order to get by. So talk to us a little bit more about this kind of very bizarre face-off um, that's encapsulated within taste, or at least kind of how we maybe uh, navigate or fail to navigate what what is good and proper taste at a particular moment in history at that particular time. Um, because this idea of you know cultural capital in a labour system, right, which reduces people to their labour value, then um, all of your personal choices are suddenly hey presto, forms of economic attributes. They're like forms of commodities. And as you were saying, that's kind of only been been amplified because of certain like uh, media communications uh, revolutions that have happened um, in uh, recent decades, which sometimes feels like it, um, like it muddies the waters a little bit when we talk about class. Definitely. And one way in which a lot of like, you know, people kind of climb the social ladder will be by learning or decoding these situations and using them to their advantage. And I use the example of the Mike Lee film Naked, uh, because that's a character who has very effectively sort of learnt some cultural cues that will enable him to move quite effortlessly through the world. And it does muddy the water of class. And it is a complicated issue. And I think for that reason, it's a kind of scary subject to tackle and approach. And I was always very reluctant to do so because I didn't want to look like I was kind of detracting from the question of just sort of more material concern. But I think that in terms of understanding electoral trends and the way that people sort of feel and the way that the class system sometimes uh, shows up between people in their like interpersonal dynamics. It's a subject and a question that we can't really afford to ignore. Mm. Because I, I guess we don't necessarily like if you just to uh, like bump into someone on the street, you don't experience them through their relationship to the means of production, right? You don't immediately have right. access to that, and it's um, it, particularly in you know the the long long shadow of the twenty nineteen election. I I'll keep thinking about you know the guy famously who was on. I think it was Newsnight, uh, who was like, you know, very angry about being uh, termed a high earner because he was on uh, ATK. And he was talking about, uh, I think he, oh, I can't remember the actual um, job that he had, but he sort of, you know, owned a small business, I believe. Yeah. And there is this sort of uh, bun fight that keeps cropping up, particularly like in, in the UK, at least, between uh, like a, a deeply cultural defense line of like what is like the authentic working class experience which is defined in opposition to like what is it flat whites hummus that maybe that's outmoded at the moment like yes, uh, whatever, yeah. like bee pollen turned up jeans however you want to define it um but also clearly like class has become complicated it's evolved since uh, Marx was uh, talking about like just the people who own factories and just the people who are on relatively similar wages were uh, like who were working at them. I know that's an oversimplification. Please don't come at me. <laughs> um, no, I mean, um, part of wanting to do this was to also make the case that like class is absolutely not a sort of a costume or a, or a visual identity that you wear. It's a However we choose to define mm -hmm. it, and I know that's a, that's a kind of question for another time, um, how we kind of define who's now working class and who's middle class, etc. Um, I did want to make the point that like sort of how you dress has almost not, has nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it's about sort of distrusting, almost like distrusting your own like eyes and your own assumptions about the other base 
purely on appearances because actually it's completely fallible um, and it doesn't really tell you anything. So another kind of reason for wanting to write this book was during 2019, I, like many people, went out and um, canvassed for the Labour Party. And I went to many places outside of London, including where I grew up in Birmingham. And I did observe quite a fascinating phenomenon, I thought, of people having very fixed ideas about how the other voted uh, based entirely on how they looked. Mm. And this was happening on both sides mm -hmm. of the kind of, of the political divide. Um, there was an assumption, and also we weren't always wearing big red badges and carrying around big red leaflets. We were yeah, sometimes camouflaged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but there was just an assumption based on appearances of how you'd vote, how much you earned or how much like wealth you had. Um, and like what your job was, what your kind of, uh, what your outlook on the world was. And actually, as soon as these people started talking, they were routinely being disproved. So quite often we would encounter people that we'd sort of pigeonholed maybe as Tories, only to discover that they were, you know, very uh, devoted Labour supporters and voters. And they had members of their family that worked in the NHS or as teachers and their political leanings weren't necessarily um, tallied to the like their appearances in the way that you would expect. But then vice versa, we'd sometimes see people who had like a push bike and was wearing dungarees or whatever, and we'd make an assumption about them only to be disproved. And that's kind of what you saw a little bit in America with like the old right as well, is that it kind of confounded traditional expectations of how um, those political uh, attitudes show up kind of aesthetically. Right. And there's a kind of uh, like fetishization of this like new young, look at this well-dressed Nazi um, kind of and, and yeah. their ability to sort of um, like move very smoothly in like young people's spaces and be like, you know, on a very basic level, trendy, right? Because we've kind right. of excised the idea of like uh, of fascism to this sort of like very bizarre, like historical lacuna, which, you know, obviously tragically <laughs> not the case but um what i was i'm kind of uh, fascinated by in in the book which which really kind of um like resonated with uh with me and sort of you know, anecdotal experiences is the way in which this kind of the denial of of taste and kind of the posture of like upper class i'm talking like upper upper class yeah. like aristocratic opting out quote unquote of the matrix of taste is the ultimate flex of good yeah. taste, right? You don't have to prove your moral worth or your political right through a series of like symbolic gestures because like you own Cornwall, right? Right, exactly. And yeah, I mean, there's none of the status anxiety that the sort of like professional classes have. I mean, taste is really a fixation of the, the bourgeoisie. It's um, once your kind of status and your wealth is guaranteed it tends to go out the window you see that with somebody like boris johnson mm -hmm. um who like quite flagrantly uh did everything he could actually to look as kind of chaotic and messy as possible um it shows up differently in like american culture just because obviously it's a different society their class system is different i guess trump really is the closest thing to like old money that you have in america he comes from like a very rich family mm. and Whereas like the Boris Johnson flex is sort of like chaotic and careless. Um, in the case of Donald Trump, it's more like gauche and like I won't conform to ideas of respectability. Um, but yes, I think that I think that 
kind of taste is a preoccupation of the kind of aspirant classes, the the bourgeoisie. Let's stick with Trump a little bit, a sentence I never thought I'd hear myself say, but um, uh, because I was always fascinated, I still am like so transfixed by, you know, throughout his tenure and also, you know, his sort of uh, electoral bid, um, the, kind, the kind of fascination, particularly within like liberal media spheres with this notion of his gaucheness, with this notion of, of his bad taste that was like articulated through like, oh, he, he ate, he eats his steak well done with ketchup. He has like gold filigree in yeah. his home because it's like the being you know, a, like a horrendous, um, like in, an incredibly wealthy person is not enough to like preclude your right for power. Like you, like at least don't be, at least don't be gauche, at least don't be like a yeah. little bit too much. Yeah. So I felt like I was going a bit insane during the um, first and hopefully only Trump term mm -hmm. in office um, because I felt as though a lot of the analysis about around his popularity missed this point really about the kind of the I felt as though there was a kind of increased pressure on people to kind of learn these codes of respectability in order to kind of get on and to feel as though they were routinely failing at them or falling short of what kind of re like respectable professional society demanded of them and then suddenly there was a spectacle of a man who seemed to not care about those things and seemed to have succeeded regardless mm. and that would have been really, really powerful and tempting, I think. And something that re despite the fact that it was born of extreme wealth and despite the fact that the spectacle itself was very opulent and excessive, it nevertheless read as much more relatable to people who felt like they hadn't quite succeeded within that professional sphere that demanded all of these sort of kind of respectable reflexes and tendencies. Um, than the alternative, which was sort of like a highly polished, um, very well educated, the kind of oratory that you see from like the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. And I read quite a lot of, you know, as research for the book, but I also read them at the time, lots of op-eds that seemed really incredulous about the fact that Trump was so garish and tasteless and had the audacity to demonstrate all of this wealth and yet was still appealing to working voters. And I was like, you've missed the point entirely. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that that's exactly why he's appealing, because it's that it's that lack of regard. It's that fact of like, actually, you know what, I didn't tie myself up in knots for eternity trying to learn these things, trying to endear myself to the people that might allow you to kind of like climb the social ladder incrementally. I did it my own way and I did it in this very kind of like brash brazen way yeah it's this it's this very kind of knotted uh like social pose of like it's like old money posing as new money posing as old money yes right? um it's it's this what feels to me at least from the outside like this deeply american uh attempt to like shove a big wedge in between like class and wealth mm -hmm. and like okay you can you can and in fact you must be incredibly wealthy like that is the metric of social success yep. but you can't be upper class because that would make you a snob. <laughs> yes. I mean, and that's really funny as well. Like I keep getting, you know, in kind of reviews of the book and stuff, I keep being accused of snobbery. And I was like, I'm actually very comfortable with that, uh, <laughs> with, with that accusation because I think that actually work, I mean, I write in this kind of tradition of people like Stuart Hall and specifically Richard Hoggart, who spent his whole life being accused of being a snob. And he always made the case that like, actually, for a working class person, that's always a, that's always a wage that's made against them by much more affluent people. And it's an accusation of kind of having overstepped the mark of, or, or like kind of 
uh, veered from your place in society by having the audacity to go and seek out, I don't know, theory or uh, classic literature, for example. So I don't care about that. But it is quite interesting, that disconnect between this idea of snobbery, um, which seems to conflate two things, which is a sort of like intellectual curiosity with material wealth, when those two things actually have no bearing on each other, with the one kind of exception of time. That's the thing that I talk about in the book as well. The only way in which the kind of subject of like uh, your kind of intellectual or creative pursuits are connected to your class status is whether you have the time to pursue them. And as we all know, working people are generally very time poor. Right. There's always this sort of like what I find really frustrating uh, conversations that like crop up on um, the, the website formerly known as twist.com. Um, uh, anytime like a sort of um, a kind of upper class coded like cultural institution is like facing defunding and it's like well mm -hmm. you know screw the english national opera like the nhs is in crisis and it's like in theory okay gun to my head i would if we have to fund one like sure right. absolutely nhs lovely but it's always kind of wrapped around this uh, this idea that um uh, like taste per se or that like cultural engagement per se is a form of like class treachery which seems to me just its own form of bigotry, I guess. Absolutely. A false binary is always created between those two things and it drives me insane. And I all, But I also, at the same time, would like to divorce art and creativity and ideas and uh, writing mm. from um, the idea of them having kind of any sort of uh, status attached to them and snobbery attached to them as well. Like I do just think those things should be freely available to everybody and there should be none of this kind of like social status attached to those things. Unfortunately, I think right. that is a product of a, a kind of form of capitalism now that has essentially created um, commodities out of human beings and the way that we now unfortunately distinguish between a high value or one of the ways in which society differentiates between a high value individual and a low value individual is quite often their cultural reference points and their level of education and education like educational attainment, which is also that complicates the question of kind of culture. And particularly when um, those sort of the drive or the kind of, I guess, pressure to participate continually in like self-curation and like taste making feels very much like another form of like workplace extraction when when those, you know, your taste is so deeply knotted to certainly your social value or your workplace activities, right? If a um if a prospective employer can like go on my Instagram and I've like gotten the wrong form of unwrapped soap and oat <laughs> milk latte, like I, you know, I don't know. I I don't have like the key into what they will necessarily make of that, but it's also how I might be spending my off time. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I mean, I suppose for kind of, uh, I have to kind of give this disclosure, like all of us sort of like working in the media and living in London, like out, we, we've already decoded a huge amount of sort of, um, yeah, kind of like cultural sensibility that I think we wouldn't even be conscious of at this point. But I'm thinking more about, you know, my experiences as a, as a teenager mm. living like very far outside of that world and attempting for the first time to try and like join it by applying to university and applying for jobs and just getting all kinds of things wrong in a way that I know, a, you know, a peer of mine who had a very different upbringing wouldn't have. They would have had a kind of degree of savvy that wasn't really a product of like how much work they'd put in. It was just through their exposure. It's what Pierre Bourdieu terms like habitus. So it's it's your cultural capital, but it's also, you know, your kind of manners of speech, the way that you hold yourself. So yes, I, I mean, those things are 
very complicated. So an interesting thing happened a few years ago where the Tory party announced that they wanted to uh, brief Ofsted to assess schools according to how well they taught cultural capital, which is a... um, It's kind of like a a misnomer. That's not the way that you use that term. The term cultural capital was coined by Pierre Bourdieu to describe this phenomenon in which human beings were being distinguished from one another according to how far they were able to kind of, like you say, demonstrate the the social and cultural mores of those in power and those um, kind of cultural gatekeepers. And so it was a word, it was a descriptive term to describe that phenomenon. It wasn't um, a virtue that um, he had created and that he insisted had to be taught in schools. And the Tory party said that they wanted schools to now teach cultural capital. And when you kind of like dug into that and what it meant, it meant essentially beyond the syllabus, ensuring that the students had an idea of like culture, but whose culture? And, And then you kind of get into questions of like, What's canonical? How was the English canon created? Um, what are the challenges to that? So the, essentially ended up kind of getting into quite like autocratic water because it was, insen- it was insisting that actually all of these students learn one very specific culture. And that was the sort of like established white traditions of uh, the British upper classes. Yeah, and it, it has kind of echoes of like what was written about Trump in it, which was almost bizarrely like, orientalizing, which is obviously feels completely nuts um, because <laughs> it was written like about one of the premier like white supremacists of our age. But there's something that feels particularly very kind of like waspy English Protestant. Um, I say this from like looking at it being like, you know, Catholicism is to me like the highest camp. But um, <laughs> through defining what is a good taste, there is always this form of like aestheteness, neatness, denial in its gestures, as, um, which feels very much like a, a form of like very coded whiteness. Yes. So the first uh, chapter beyond the introduction of the book. It starts off in Antwerp in Belgium, which was the center of the Flemish Renaissance, um, which was sort of like the aesthetic arm of the kind of uh, Calvinist Protestant uh, movement in Northern Europe. And really no discussion of kind of like contemporary ideas and like what constitutes tastefulness and what constitutes like garishness can afford to ignore the ways in which it's sort of coded in religion. And at that point, um, you know, around the time of the uh, Reformation, the whole idea was to kind of challenge the idolatry and the excesses of the Catholic Church. And so it was sort of in its first sort of incarnation or whatever, kind of an attempt to, uh, yeah, kind of instill a sense of humility and kind of bring worship back to the subject of God and God only. But then obviously it then became the sort of dominant kind of aesthetic sensibility and code of a an elite in Northern Europe that then moved over and shaped a lot of American culture. And so this is how you kind of right. end up with these like- And colonised a lot of the world, world as well. Exactly. So it ceased to be, a, it ceased to be a sort of symbol of like humility and restraint and modesty and actually became a form of kind of cultural and social dominance. So talking about that kind of like stripped back uh, anti-garishness, um, <laughs> something that I'd love to talk about is is minimalism, right? Mm. It's almost like now it's the kind of default 
for, you know, good taste interior design is the kind of like Coco Chanel take one thing off to like take into the maximum of interior design. Like, um, see the kind of cartoonish extreme of this is like, I don't know if any listeners have um, seen photos of Kim Kardashian, Kanye West's uh, interior, which to me looks like a freaking like mausoleum. It like genuinely, I find it unsettling. Um, But it is like the kind of most minimalist of of, of minimalist (laughs) gestures either. But I just look at it and I think, oh my God, who is who's cleaning this right it's the kind yeah. of it's the that absence to me is 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 the kind of embodiment of a lot of labor like uh, that you are absolutely not the one doing it yeah exactly uh, it's really like the occlusion of chaos and mess and uh clutter is really the kind of like true signifier of wealth in a you know at a time when people are time poor and, you know, it's all they can really manage to do to just kind of like pay their bills, hold down their job, make sure that their families are provided for. You know, this idea of like a kind of sterile, clean sanctuary has become an emblem of luxury. And that's quite interesting as well, because obviously the sort of ostensibly minimalism is all about uh, kind of restraint and kind of it's set up in opposition to the excesses of like consumerism, mm-hmm. etc. Um, so that was very interesting to me. And I was looking at websites and magazines like The Modern House, mm. which helped to sort of uh, popularize this idea. And the other thing that was quite interesting that's related to this is the kind of how the opposite is discussed. And there was a description by the author, Olivia Lang, um, related to the artist Vivian Mayer, mm-hmm. the photographer, who was a bit of a kind of savantish character. <laughs> and part of the sort of mythos that now surrounds her is that she was uh, a hoarder. Mm. And it's kind of always told as symptomatic of some kind of like dysfunctional, like psychological imbalance in her, that she was eccentric to the point of kind of like madness because she had all of these things. And it kind of, she lived in this very crowded small space. But Olivia Lang says that actually isn't this idea of hoarding essentially kind of like Mm class-based because it's just uh, defined by how much space you have. So a wealthy person with as many kind of uh, objects isn't classified as a hoarder because they're able to kind of store them in a way that seems... uh, I don't know, more kind of orderly or something. <laughs> but it's essentially like there's a class-based judgment and this idea of hoarding and that it's essentially only ever uh, an observation that's made of people that didn't have much money and didn't have much space, but liked stuff, you know, and it doesn't have to be exp- you know, expensive stuff. It invariably isn't expensive, expensive stuff. Also, there's the um, shadow of like necessity there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if you... Um, if you know that you have the fluid cash to, you know, get whatever you need at a moment's notice, there's no need to kind of hoard like Tupperware and yes. rubber bands and like old nails and batteries and that kind of thing in case you might need them one day, because if you need them, you can get them. Yes, go and buy new. Uh, so we've talked about the interior, but um, of course, when we leave our spaces to go navigate the world around us, was clothing is one of the key ways in which we present ourselves to the world. And it's odd as well, because, you know, fashion is almost seen like elliptically as this sort of like frivolous, like ridiculous 
feminized thing that you know why would we even like be preoccupying ourselves with talking about it but like obviously that's coming from a gesture of people who maybe don't need to um, concern themselves so much about uh you know how they might be perceived yes i've always found fashion really interesting and i say that now without any kind of caveats or apologies which is new for me because i used to always feel sort of like it was, you, know, you say, like a malign subject and you shouldn't talk about fashion. I find fashion very, very interesting. My, you know, I enjoy clothes. Um, I try to enjoy a relationship with clothes that's kind of untethered from how they're necessarily like read by other people, but that's very difficult to achieve. And I think that, you know, in the course of my life, my relationship to how I dressed has altered radically as well. Um, but I wanted to sort of look at this question of why sort of subcultures have died out because the kind of easy and simple answer is like the internet. Everyone's just like, well, the internet came and it it spelled the end of subculture because it had this flattening effect and suddenly everything was freely available and you could just sort of pick and choose bits of different past subcultures and it had this sort of homogenizing flattening effect, which I've always felt like, I think there's a degree of truth in it, but I've always felt it was like too simple. Mm-hmm. And it's also a little bit boomer to just blame everything on the internet. So I wanted to kind of think a bit more deeply about why it is that um, sort of different subcultures have disappeared. And I was thinking about the kind of emergence of like normcore as a clothing, as a kind of clothing trend um, and that idea normcore for uh, listeners who might not be uh, familiar <laughs> with with normcore, can you uh, can you give us a little bit of a clue to what uh, what we're talking about? Yes. Well, the thing is, is it's very tricky to actually describe. Right. <laughs> it's essentially a kind of a type of fashion. If I can even call it a trend, I don't know. I mean, in the book, I say that it's almost not a trend, but it's this sort of tendency mm. in uh, fashion that sort of occurred in the last sort of fifteen, ten, fifteen years of people to dress sort of like. Um, Again, I don't want to like reinforce any norms by saying this. The norm that it sort of centers on is a, is a sort of like middle class white dad of the 1990s. So it's kind of like sneakers, jeans, a nice pullover. Um, that's it in its kind of like most recognizable form, I suppose. But really it kind of speaks to this kind of like fixation just with like, as opposed to style and clothing being an expression of identity or your affinity with a kind of music genre or a, a kind of nightlife scene or something or an aspirational lifestyle. It's more about kind of demonstrating a kind of proficiency in fashion and and indicating to people in the outside world that you know who like the best kind of like, who does the best tailoring, who has the best materials and the best fabrics. And the result of it is quite a kind of bland kind of strain of fashion. But it seems to also kind of like cannibalized all other forms of fashion. There doesn't seem to be much kind of variation in the way that people dress. And that's why I'm really um find myself like really obsessed, I guess, with like forms of hyper feminine bimbofied dressing, which I'm having like a little bit of a resurgence now because, you know, it's seen as like gauche and, and obscene and I, I but I'm hypnotized by it not just because like obviously all roads lead to Dolly Parton queen of my heart but <laughs> also because there is um I'm, I'm interested by that notion of of obscenity like why does a like a velour tracksuit with like Gucci emblazoned across the butt read to us as more obscene than like a very particular like boxy fit fantastic quality cotton t-shirt that Mark Zuckerberg wears that probably like costs more than the average rent. Yeah, I think this has to do with the question of kind of like the sexualization as well. I think that um, 
the way that, and this is quite a complicated idea and I go into it in this, uh, the following chapter, which is about beauty. But I think that the way that contemporary advertising operates is to kind of create this idea of beauty, which is something that is kind of like God-given and unattainable to the average person, but the kind of like accessible alternative that you are able to achieve yourself is a kind of sexiness. But sexiness is always kind of uh, discussed in terms of it being quite like a synthetic quality. It's something mm. that you have to like buy, you have to pay, pay for. And so anything that kind of codes as like sexual or uh, kind of um, reinforces a kind of like gender binary in any way is coded through advertising as um, sex as sexualized. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it has this kind of like cheapened effect. That's quite a complicated idea for me to have to explain in words. And it, it's why <laughs> I kind of devote a whole chapter to it. Mm -hmm. But um, there's an academic called Eva Illu, who wrote a book called The End of Love. And she discusses this in more detail, how uh, sort of uh, sexiness was this virtue that could be bought and was more accessible to the average consumer than this idea of beauty that sort of taunted us. It was the kind of like the promise that we could never quite achieve this idea of beauty, but sexiness was something we could achieve through certain purchases. And I think that through advertising, some of the objects that you describe or certain, some of the codes of dressing that you describe have been uh, sort of sold to us as, as sexual. Right. And they are kind of more consciously like, like gestures of like, self-marking I'm, I'm kind of really interested by the kind of maybe coincidental maybe connected rise of normcore and uh, sort of silicon valley like shoeless office auteurist genius who like has far more important coding business to do than to like think about you know what to put on their body or most frequently his body um every day i'm i sort of get it in terms of the appeal like because you know just through the basic fact of like walking around and being perceived as a woman in the world like I can't help but be marked and be like observable in a slightly different way and it's like yeah no if, if I were to be like offered a kind of norm core costume of like alien undercover like <laughs> unperceivable like great fantastic but that is also a class posture yes Definitely. Um, the other thing about the uh, Silicon Valley tech genius thing as well, and I was thinking about uh, the kind of style of corporate dress that has been adopted by those companies in contrast to the kind of corporates, you know, the kind of corporate styles of the 1980s and 1990s. And I think that what happened there was a lot of the products that they were creating required a degree of user participation in the way that the corporate banking sector of the 1980s and 1990s didn't. Mm -hmm. So it needed to kind of create this uh, sort of mythology around it of being this kind of like cool, relaxed, democratic, flat structure. They love to talk about having like a flat corporate structure where there's no hierarchy, of course, <laughs> and it's deeply hierarchical, as we all know. <laughs> that that was really essential to creating the kind of end product that was going to then be adopted by everybody and subsumed into their lives. If it had seemed like it was being created by a like very haughty and elitist kind of cohort, we would have been slightly more reluctant to adopt it, I think. I mean, like Steve Jobs is really funny, isn't he? Because he's like sort of, he deliberately positioned himself through like his style of dress in a kind of like tradition that's more like Samuel Beckett than it is <laughs> Patrick Bateman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and what was that about? Why did that happen? And I think it's several things that previously mentioned about like, you know, the end product that they were creating. But I think also it was this 
emphasis on cultural capital that um, that really kind of ramped up in the 1990s um, and that being the sort of like really like operative form of social mobility as opposed to kind of like entrepreneurialism which is what and kind of business mindedness which you saw in the 1980s it was the kind of conflation of those two things so it was that like it was the kind of corporate emphasis on cultural capital taken to its absolute nth degree is what you see in a figure like Steve Jobs who was a businessman but wanted to present as a like you say a kind of an artist an auteur a genius um and you see this as well in I was you know I refer to kind of like popular modes of um like interior design in like members clubs um which are you know kind of made to look almost like kind of artisanal studios or something <laughs> um yeah and when it comes to emulating a sort of position of, of being norm core of, of kind of rejecting this sort of um, nest of symbols through which we could like mark ourselves as like slightly different. Obviously, there's a, there's a massive difference between like who can walk down the street and want to not be perceived or like want to be kind of like vaguely symbolless as its own form of symbol and those for whom that similar gesture is seen as inherently suspicious because it's they need to be like surveilled. Like that's, you know, the logic of policing that reigns dominant in every urban space that you have to name. And I'm thinking yeah. particularly of your discussion of the hoodie. Obviously, mm -hmm. a key part of your aspirational norm core wardrobe. <laughs> and also if you are a particularly a young black person and yeah. trying to enter like many, many social spaces still to this day, a hoodie will be a pretext sometimes to like to get you just completely banned from Yes. Those spaces. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, like the um, the hoodie as a kind of like emblem of real prosperity now. You know, if you're a white guy who has learned certain like forms of coding and you wear a hoodie, it's sort of coding to, you know, fellow professionals that you have kind of made it mm. and in these shoeless offices, et cetera. A hoodie worn, like you say, by a young black man in a place where the police are given kind of total impunity is something very different. And so I talked about Trayvon Martin and the uh, the hoodie in his trial, which was essentially used by his killer to justify his actions because there had been an order sort of by the Neighbourhood Watch programme to be cautious of anyone who was wearing black clothing. And I don't actually know if they specifically mentioned a hoodie, but the point where he called the police, he mentioned the hoodie. It was raining, by the way. So the reason why he was wearing a hoodie was to protect his head. Like I would imagine the vast majority of people in that part of Florida at that time on that day were also doing. Um, so it's how this object obviously, again, like signifies different things depending on who's wearing it and the context in which they're wearing it. So I guess bouncing off that, how do you um, see or how do you perceive the, the kind of limits of that sort of social mobility or that social fluidity that like good taste is supposed to offer like the the average working person. Yeah, what's quite interesting, I think, is that were the average working person to adopt some of the kind of like modes of dress that actually in certain kind of fetid uh, enclaves and um, work environments favour, if they were to do that when they're not actually part of that world yet, it would be used as a um, means of social exclusion. Hmm. So, I, you know, at the point where I was like starting out in my career and wanting to apply for my first job, if I'd have turned up in a hoodie, jeans and no shoes, that's not going to get me a job. <laughs> and it's again, it's this top down thing. It's kind of like the higher you ascend, 
through the class system, the less you ha- you're kind of forced to have to adhere to these ideas of like propriety, respectability, good taste. You're free to kind of flout them. So um, from uh, your clothes to, I guess, by implication, what's under them often, um, <laughs> there is this very, uh, very thorny and also very vague um, sphere of taste, also known as uh, beauty. And we're talking about it here in terms of personal beauty, like the beauty of like individuals wandering around and it seems to be like it's kind of similar posture or similar um, technique that we've gestured at a couple of times here in taste is is evident in its highest articulation through the the apparent like denial of the need to like make actually like very mannered and like highly culturally specific decisions i'm thinking here of um your example of like glossier glossier i never know how to pronounce good that. question yeah me yeah. neither Listeners will know what we mean. <laughs> the one with the lip gloss and the perfect skin, et cetera, et cetera, because it is sold on the idea of like deep authenticity. It's not about a beauty that is is purchasable or it's not about a way of like navigating the world like first and foremost as a consumer. This is about us, you know, helping you shine your inner light from within yes. and what that actually sort of results in is the need to have like perfect skin the the entire time yeah well it kind of it, when I think about brands like that they really remind me of those like you know the regal portraiture of the 16th and 17th century mm-hmm. um where there was you know the highest kind of status symbol was to have sort of immaculate clear skin that was so un uh, tarnished by like work and exposure to the elements that you could like see the veins glowing out from within. And um, there was just something in the way that these brands were marketing themselves that reminded me of that. Mm-hmm. It was this kind of kind of tacit communication to people that you don't really require much intervention in order to look as beautiful as you do. And I think that we do live in like a very... Uh, when it comes to like physical beauty and this really depresses me and upsets me but I do think we live in a like you know a very superficial society that Mm -hmm. still places a huge amount of emphasis on people's physical appearances and to like deny that that has a bearing particularly for women in the way that they kind of like move through uh the Mm. you know the the working world and how they're kind of positioned economically is ridiculous like we have to talk about that and um, so I was interested in these brands that essentially were, yeah, saying that you don't need any intervention, but nevertheless selling us very expensive products. <laughs> I always think of like the ways in which like uh, like spanks and like feminine shapewear is like often the subject of a lot of mockery mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, it's both like very high effort in the wrong way and also very low effort in the wrong way because what you should of course, do instead is either have that kind of body naturally or go sweat it out in the gym until you have that body by effort. Yes, exactly. And it's sim- it's similar as well to like uh, plastic surgery mm. as well. And this like horrible stigma that surrounds the idea of people having like having work done. Mm. Um, Which is a fascinating phrase as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's vile, isn't it? It's really awful. But it's like this idea that, you know, we place so much emphasis on how people look and everyone knows that. And yet, any sign that someone has like caved to the pressure of that or done something to like make themselves feel better within that incredibly judgmental economy 
is seen as some kind of, yeah, transgression or something, or it's something to be ashamed of, or it's something embarrassing. And it's the subject of like horrible gossip magazines and all that. But Spanx is a similar sort of thing. It's anything that sort of indicates a degree of like um, artificiality. But then this idea of artificiality, I find just like completely ludicrous because human beings, I believe are not sort of like static things they are living creatures they are ever changing like they're <laughs> sorry to get <laughs> yeah. down to like a cellular level but like even no, at a cellular right. level yeah. they're constantly being reconstituted and changing and how you know a person appears one day will be very different to how they appear another other, another day and this idea of there being a kind of like natural state and an artificial state is ludicrous to me and it's like where do you draw the line is my natural state the state I'm in before I you know clip my fingernails, cut my hair, brush my teeth, wash my face. Does that constitute something artificial and unnatural? Um, it's, you can't really draw the line. And it's a, I'm making a quite like crude point, I think, just to demonstrate what I'm trying to say, which is that there's nothing kind of like more artificial about somebody who might engage in plastic surgery than there is somebody who doesn't. Um, right. And there well, is and this kind of you know, like this very um, false boundary between this idea of like you know natural beauty and uh, like sexiness as you were mentioning uh before and there is yeah something seen as like very um suspect about like particularly women who are like quote unquote cave to like the overwhelming like economic and social pressure to like self-represent in like extremely like careful ways right and particularly yeah. in, in terms of you know it should be all about like a denial of yes. the body. It's this posture you need to be austere and one and fragile and all this kind of things, which is supposed to be about a higher state of learning, right? Or a yeah. higher state of, of, of being where, you know, for most people, if you are maintaining that oneness and that fragility, it actually requires a lot of effort and a yes. lot of thinking and a lot of being in your body in like often quite torturous ways. Yes. Also, if there's anyone who is uh, sort of, suspicious of how far these things actually affect people's lives and how real they really are, like the subjects that we're talking about. Like go into very elite universities like Oxford and Cambridge, mm -hmm. which I have um, direct experience of, go into certain kind of um, office spaces. Tell me how many people in those offices are above a certain size. Mm -hmm. Tell me how many people in those offices have any kind of like, cons like conspicuous surgery of any kind. Like, generally speaking, these uh, industries favor, like you say, a sort of like self-denying, very kind of like one fragile kind of person. But it's also, it, it has to demonstrate a sort of like innate strength, athleticism, health, vigor, and there have been times in my life where I felt very conspicuous because I didn't quite conform to that. Right. And there is some uh, some shadow here. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a uh, always stuck record on this, but like with this a very far right conceptualization of like uh, right moral action and right political action, which is seems to be always reducible down to like bodily discipline and like bodily mm -hmm like surveillance and like quite strict governance. And there is this like one-to-one -one relationship between the, the health of the body politic, like quite literally conceived of, and the health of its like individual members, right? It's like the, in the US, yeah. they still have like a president's physical fitness test, yeah. which is seems 
so bananas to me. Yeah. And I see these things as well as being in direct opposition to the ideas, you know, the idea of like a national health service, for example, or the idea that like health is the kind of like provision of like a, you know, a community or a government is the idea that like it becomes this incredibly like individualized thing. So there's this huge emphasis on like people having all these different apps that will like measure their like their um, productivity and their, uh, their, activity, how many calories they've consumed, how much they've slept at night. It becomes this highly individualized thing that one has to kind of like master and become really good at in themselves as a sort of like defense against a world in which like your basic well-being won't be catered to mm. at the kind of social level. Um, and so I see those two things as being in opposition. And that kind of necessity of like at least proving that you are um, willing to like self-surveil yeah. on that kind of like granular level has this sort of like moral gesture, right? Like, okay, even if I, if I don't like visually quite measure up to the mark, I'm still kind of proving myself as like a right and proper, like moral and political subject by trying to <laughs> at least. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, so talk to us a bit about Pedro Almodovar, because I really, uh, fascinated by your discussion of, um, all about my mother. Yeah. For each of these chapters, I try to kind of focus on a scene in TV or film um, that has struck me for the fact of kind of raising some of the issues that interest me. And there's a scene in All About My Mother. going to give a synopsis without giving away any spoilers. All About <laughs> My Mother is about a woman who encounters... Um, kind of adversity quite early on in the story mm -hmm. and find solace in a kind of community of amateur dramatic uh, performers at a local theatre. And it's a sort of, um, it's a really interesting community of different people. Some of them are actresses, some of them are sex workers or former sex workers. Penelope Cruz's character has something to do with religion. And um, yeah, they all kind of bring a different perspective to life that helps to kind of guide the protagonist through this difficult phase in her life. One of the characters is called Agrado, and she is a former sex worker who has had, um, she's a trans woman, and she has had ver various surgical procedures um, throughout her life, some of which were um, to affirm her gender identity, and some of which were to fix a sort of physical abuses that she'd encountered, both within her job and also just in her personal life. And there's a scene in the middle of the film where they plan a kind of big performance and the key performers don't turn up and Agrado is tasked with having to kind of um, apologise to the audience for the fact that the performance wasn't going to go ahead and um, also sort of entertain them. And what she gives is this monologue in which she sort of recounts all of the difficult, different surgical procedures that she's had. Mm. And... Pedro Almodovar is a really wonderful filmmaker and I think that his body of work has done like more to kind of um, protect and advocate for women than almost any other kind of filmmaker mm. or author who's living today. And I really love him. And this speech that Agrado gives is a sort of riposte to that um, sort of puritanical beauty culture that says that beauty is this like innate thing and it's all about kind of revealing the like true, vital, healthy individual within. Um, it's about instead, she says, it's about kind of bringing out and materialising the person that you've always kind of envisioned being and how that is really 
the idea of authenticity. So it's, it, it mounts a completely different idea of authenticity, not authenticity as something that's like biological or kind of like genetically coded, but actually an expression of a self that you can only really access and you can only really convey to the outside world by kind of shutting yourself off from the kind of cruel voices of advertising and the imperatives of the kind of market economy. Do you think that there's a, a relationship between like being a drawn by that form of like authenticity and your work as uh, an author. I'm, I'm sorry for the horrible <laughs> pun. But um, uh, when I was reading your book, I was, I was thinking about editorial and like artistic ethics and, ha uh, and how they're described as sort of making your um, either your painting or your, you know, certainly your, your piece of writing lean, making it muscular, making it um, fighting fit, like trimming the fat. There is this like very close symmetry sometimes between like the ways in which we talk about uh, moral beauty, like personal beauty and also artistic beauty. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'd never really thought about it until you said it like that. But as you were saying that, when I was approaching this book, you know, my first thinking when I was, you know, my first thought when I was approaching it was that I was going to write about the subject of taste. And I went and did all the relevant reading. And I wrote the kind of bare bones or like structure of a book that was sort of very theoretical, due on some kind of real world examples that were like taken from news and kind of current affairs, but brought none of the kind of anecdotal into it. And I kept thinking that if I did that, it would reduce the, it would kind of compromise the credibility of the book, which mm -hmm. again is also, uh, well, I don't know whether it's kind of a sexist assumption, but I can kind of get into that as well. But um, as I was doing it, I was also reading a lot of um, work by one of my favorite authors who's called Eve Babbitts, and she died at the end of last year. And her writing is essentially just like one extraneous detail after another. Like there's almost no thrust or purpose to anything she wrote. <laughs> it was just an exercise in recording every kind of idle thought that ever occurred to her. And it's so <laughs> compelling and it's so hilarious. And through reading that, I was like, I just made a decision. I was like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to have all this theoretical basis to what I'm writing, but I am going to pursue the sort of more like interpretive personal dimensions to all of this as well and create what, you know, has been described by some people as like a slightly freewheeling kaleidoscopic text. Um, but as is my right, as you say, Eleanor, because I think that <laughs> the, book I, the book itself, I wanted to kind of be an exercise in kind of flouting literary convention in some ways. Let's go to your discussion of food um, because this is particularly in like uh, the age of like I guess the increasingly um, parodied food picture uh, on like various social media platforms um, as like a, a very sort of heightened way in which um, like we reveal our taste. You know, obviously in like literal and um, <laughs> metaphorical um, terms. I'd love to talk a bit about um, Jamie Oliver. <laughs> um, often uh, a bugbear of like uh, food writers everywhere and just the shaming of kind of fast food mums because I'm really um, interested in how that helps us untangle this connection that you've been talking about between like taste and time. Yeah, I was talked down actually from what I wanted to write about Jamie Oliver because I get he makes <laughs> me very angry um, and it is perhaps slightly irrational. So I'm glad that I was talked down from like the way that I wanted to approach that because I do think that, okay, you know, approaching this in good faith, I think that guy did genuinely want to kind of like help people live healthier lives. Fine. <laughs> so that's what he did with his ministry of food thing and, you know, all of his like cookbooks around like how to cook healthy meals or whatever. The problem was that, you know, the impediments to people 
eating healthily aren't they're kind of like it's not the fact that they're like consumer brain is just stupid and needs educating Mm -hmm. there are many 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 structural factors that contribute to the fact that people don't all of us don't eat as healthily as we might like to cost being one and issues related to supply chains but also just the way in which obviously like you know food has been cordoned off Mm. and you know, we uh, we are dependent on big chain supermarkets for what we eat and everything is inflation linked, etc. There is also the factor of time and people being time poor. And this idea that, you know, it will just take a little shift in consumer mindset and a little bit of like effort of an evening and you too can eat healthily completely ignores the, you know, all of those structural factors that I just mentioned, but also the kind of the need for pleasure in people's lives and the idea that like after a working day, you know, maybe you don't want to spend that time cooking because you've got a couple of hours between stepping through the front door, going to bed, in which time lots of other chores need to be done. And actually the thing that you're seeking is convenience. I mean, it's an obvious point to make. And it seems sometimes when I was writing the food chapter, I was like, you know, these are almost too obvious points to make. But I wanted to because... For some reason, despite us all knowing that, food culture still seems to enjoy this kind of like real impunity with respect to like its kind of moral condescension towards other people. Mm -hmm. And even like I would say like, you know, people on the left, people I know on the left are guilty of that. It seems to be the one thing in which they're like, you know, oh, yeah, I wouldn't judge someone on like, you know, what they're kind of forced to buy in terms of how they, you know decorate their home or how they dress or whatever. But on the matter of food, or you should eat healthily and you should take the matter of your um, diet very, very seriously. And it just seems to be this one persistent bigotry and it is kind of connected to fat phobia as well um, that I wanted to just challenge. Right. And something that I, I've encountered is like, okay, you know, if you're going to buy like, I don't know, like cheap, like off the shelf sliced white loaf from Tesco rather than like a five pound thing of sourdough or even more preferably like bake and tend your own sourdough starter or whatever. Um, the least you could do is just like not enjoy it. Right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, you know, have some decency here. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, but by reverse as well, like when I'm eating, you know, when I've had like m- microwave a meal or pizza or, you know, supermarket pizza or whatever, three nights in a row, four nights in a row. I'm not doing that because I fail to understand that that's unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. <I'm, laughs> I'm doing it because I'm tired because I've got like an underlying medical condition that makes me like, you know, not want to leave the house sometimes and not able to leave the house sometimes because I just want to enjoy something, like you say. Right. And it, there is this kind of, you know, this um, incredibly like, ableist rhetoric so often that it's it's often cloaked in um uh, sort of maybe like green clothing sometimes about things like you know having like a frozen bag of chopped onions or something like that like how difficult is it to chop up an onion how much time does it take it's like actually sometimes like quite a lot of effort or you know a lot of executive function or you just as you say have a very limited amount of time and i think um for me, I guess I can't like extricate the Jamie Oliver phenomenon, um, however kind of well-intentioned like the man himself may have been from this like real anxiety around like the collapse of of the family as this um, like securitization of like working time because it's this anxiety about um, your taste in food is is often an anxiety about like the 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 work of the 
food provider. Yes, and the children being nourished in the right way. And he's really emblematic of a very traditional and conservative family expectation. I mean, it's almost like cartoonish, their kind of image of a sort of like bucolic, uh, heterosexual, I was going to say 2.4 children, but they've got about 25 children. Yes. <laughs> a brood, a brood of children um, that's kind of centered in like, a, again, like a very white, very middle-class tradition. And that's part of the cooking and like cooking empire as well. Like the, the family are harnessed in the branding. And so there is this sense that there is, you know, it's not just about your health, but there's this kind of like moral imperative that goes beyond your health. That's about the kind of moral imperative to find a husband, settle down and, you know, yeah. get married. <laughs> and there is in that, um, the the packaging of, of that form of food culture, something of like the horror of being petty bourgeois, right? We all on, go on the internet, we make fun of like Fiat 500s and live, laugh, love signs. And like, that is the thing that like, no one wants to like observably be if you want to be like, cool fl fluid cultural signifiers we've got them on lock kind of thing because it's 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 both this like back to earth like humble pure peasanthood nostalgia but also very much about being part of like a leisure class with like time to worry about your sourdough starter yeah exactly and the other thing i wanted to mention with food is there is the like there's the economic barriers to eating healthily there's the which of which time is part of it as well like you say but also I think that food particularly is really connected to matters of like self-esteem as well mm -hmm. and that that's never factored into these um, discussions around like eating healthily it's just sort of like just do the right thing it's such a because it is one of the like more freely accessible forms of pleasure that we can access yeah it, it, it's tied to how we're feeling, which is the other thing that's sort of like hazier and more difficult to define. Because you can talk about people not having the money to you know, buy healthy food necessarily, or not having the time in which to think about meal planning and buy all the right stuff and then go away and cook it. But what's kind of more difficult to talk about from a kind of uh, left-wing kind of Marxist perspective is also how all of those things contribute to your kind of like uh, an in low morale mm, yeah and how that impacts your diet and the way that you want to eat as well um tell me more about that because i think as well yeah the, so a lot of the a lot of the branding around kind of healthy living which again that's also interesting a lot of the kind of healthy food movement isn't just about food it's not like cookery books you know which first became really popular in like the 1970s they were cooked they were manuals you bought them and it yeah. included like a list of things that you could make and it showed you how to make them but increasingly what they're becoming is almost like lifestyle manuals yeah. so it's not just about you know the preparation of food or trying to bring some of that like teaching from the like the professional kitchen into the home it's actually it's all wrapped up in a lot of directives in terms of you know directives in how you live and how you order your life and how you interact with your family there's this idea of this big dinner table where everyone gathers at night and there's you know and there's photos of like beaming families and people handing plates of food <laughs> to one another while I don't know discussing current affairs <laughs> and um Delightful. Yeah. And so food is, uh, yeah, food, I think, is being increasingly used as a way of sort of also kind of directing us in terms of our kind of like uh, the way that we live other aspects of our lives, our relationships um, and our domestic setups. 
So I guess my question is um, when we're attempting to navigate what feels like a very all-encompassing sphere of taste, like how do we um, start like reclaiming or like making space for forms of self-expression or like forms of like, I guess, authenticity is maybe a troubled term here um, that are maybe like less uh, under the cosh of uh, taste as you as you outline it. Um, I'm particularly interested by um, your discussion of the experience economy here because the strange uh, wedge that sort of is put between an experience and just kind of leisure time, just sort of something that you do. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's very interesting to think about how like all of our leisure time has now been co-opted by capitalism. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily advocate for, you know, each of us not thinking about taste. I mean, that's quite an outlandish thing to suggest, I think. It would be quite outlandish for me to suggest that. We can't, the whole point of me writing this is to say like, you know, a lot of this stuff is happening Mm -hmm. below the surface of our conscious mind. It's Mm -hmm. not something that we're thinking about all the time. And therefore we can't, you know, kind of consciously avoid it. And what I definitely don't believe in and what I'm very keen to stress at the end of the book is like, this is not, uh, I'm not instructing people to try and like be more like tasteless, whatever that might mean. Because regardless of like how, you know, whatever the kind of like trend might be at the time, it always has a way of becoming uh, the kind of the, the expression of power. So there's a kind of like emerging trend at the moment that's like slightly more garish. It's like lots of Scandinavian brands that were once like, you know, the minimalism of Scandinavian brands has sort of shifted and it's quite like bright and colorful and in your face and, and, that will happen. That will continue to happen. What's fashionable in five years mm-hmm. will be very different to what's fashionable now. So I think that, yeah, it wouldn't be a case of trying to like consciously resist those aesthetic codes or mount some alternative and, you know, kind of adopt a more like garish or like expressive way of being necessarily. What I would just urge, I think, is a kind of like recalibration of like how we see ourselves, not through our like aesthetic choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and to kind of like see ourselves from the outside. I think there's a tendency to do that, particularly with, you know, social media, to kind of like look at ourselves as an avatar Mm -hmm. and to keep wanting to like hone this avatar and perfect it and make it coherent because the more coherent it is, the more sellable it is in the the kind of, you know, the the work, the workplace and and in the job market. Um, But to try to like encourage people to reconfigure their outlook to prioritize like pleasure desire Mm -hmm. joy um rather than seeing themselves as sort of tradable commodities that need to be refined 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 Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navarro Media from just £1 a month. A regular donation helps us to plan our future and be even more ambitious with our coverage of news, politics, culture and the really big ideas that you'll always find on our podcasts. So please consider joining us and become a regular supporter from just £1 a month by heading to navarromedia.com forward slash support.